don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 26. And today we're talking about 1973 Soylent Green, directed by Richard Fleischer and starring uh, Mr. NRA himself, Charlton Heston. <laughs> I was I was wondering how long it would take before that would come up. Yeah, uh, so I, I just remember him like being old and on stage at an NRA convention or like a Republican national convention or whatever with like his fist in the air like come and take them or like whatever he said yeah i i i'll credit michael moore with kind of uh searing that image into everyone's memory and i and, and let me just say i think michael moore I, I didn't use that name in a derogatory way the way most people do i think as a personality michael moore is annoying but i think the substance of his films is very much worth paying attention to. Yeah. And so Bowling uh, Bowling for Columbine is the documentary we're referring to where uh, Heston is painted as sort of a sad, old, pathetic man <laughs> um, who's clinging to his mythology of a, of a gone America. <laughs> Doesn't sound like anybody I know. No. <laughs> um, so he, it's kind of funny because even in this film that's made in the 70s, he looks old. Um, I, I don't know what his age would have been at this time, but I did a tiny amount of research. And apparently he was in the 60s, he was like a Democrat and very left leaning and very pro uh, the civil rights movement and all that. And then something happened in the 70s. Maybe it was Soylent Green. And then he's a very kind of oh, hardcore well. Reagan guy and then NRA president for five terms or whatever it was. Yeah, who knows? That that would that's kind of puzzling. Yeah, it's a head scratcher, which kinda but you know, it kinda makes sense that you would have someone who is very, you know, World War Two generation, kinda like Clint Eastwood type generation. Um, and eventually it seemed like they all kind of came home to roost in this like very conservative view of America and what it, what it should be and how many guns everyone should own. But I, 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 I'm not sure I'm sort of interested in, uh, Charlton Heston's, um, you know, early days and, uh, political leanings before you know i was alive and uh i found i guess it's just a blog but it's a blog specifically about soylent green and ecological concerns and i'm not sure who this guy is i'll I'll look it up in a second i've just got the quote pulled up here um This guy says, Soylent Green falls most neatly into Bailey's discussion of the apocalyptic predictions he claims Earth Day 1970 provoked. Although Peter Biskind describes Charlton Heston as one of the, quote, old Hollywood right and disregards Richard Richard Fleischer altogether, Soylent Green is clearly a film of the 1970s, 
Unlike the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s, the environmental movement was supported by a cross-section of Americans, including those with right-leaning politics like those of Richard Nixon, under whose presidency the EPA was founded. So it comes as no surprise that a film like Soylent Green, directed by an old-school director and starring an old Hollywood right actor, embraces so strong an environmental message. End quote. And that's what I thought the whole time I was watching this movie. I was wondering, is Heston's presence a an indicator that, you know, environmental issues used to be less polarized? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. And I I think I don't know if we've talked about this before, but that was also kind of the case in the 90s. Right. Is that it kind of crossed the aisle as far as uh, topics go? And I think, unless I'm just horribly mistaken, that George H.W. Bush, uh, George the First, passed some sort of ecological leg- legislation, some sort of like environmental legislation. Yeah, you know, I heard a, I heard a reference to that just this week on NPR. I can't remember what it was, but maybe that's I what I was specifically about. hearing. That yeah, because uh, so they were talk they were talking about that the recent uh, Democratic candidate town hall on cnn climate mm-hmm. town hall yeah um, which we should at least acknowledge on this podcast i guess <laughs> yeah definitely i think before the before the election which you know still plenty of time we should do like a, a like breakdown of it yeah uh, maybe wait yeah. until we have an actual democratic candidate but do something like that here's what i think i think in place of like a uh town hall CNN should just air first reformed <laughs> on a loop until November <laughs> of next year. Oh goodness. It, but uh, what, what were you saying about the town hall? Oh, it existed or it, oh, it, it, that, that happened. That's a thing. And that's a, a good thing that happened. And Elizabeth Warren I, th- I think just to give my two cents, I think Bernie Sanders, as always, is the most um, uh, is the is the person saying the most sane things. Uh, but Elizabeth Warren had a great answer to a question. Someone posed the question, are you going to try to regulate our light bulbs? Uh, because, you know, this whole thing has come out where Trump has deregulated like efficient sustainable light bulbs and so someone puts it to uh, uh warren are you going to try to regulate our light bulbs and she gets this sort of exasperated look on her face and she says this is exactly the conversation the fossil fuel industry wants us to be having and and gives a pretty eloquent explanation of why that is so and how we've been duped into thinking that it, you know, real environmental change is a product of individuals making small moral choices at the grocery store and at the hardware store. Uh, and it was just like the first time in a long time I've heard anything that uh, correct and meaningful on CNN. So, yeah. And uh, something that's related to both of that and our discussion a little bit last week about trivializing death for sort of ideological and political reasons is uh, the whole plastic straw, paper straw thing that's been going on. People, 
you know, bitch and moan. Oh, the paper straw disintegrates. Blah blah blah. Um, I think that's that's what she. I think she referred to that in her response. Yeah, but then if you remember, uh, this has been a few weeks ago, I guess, maybe months. I, I don't know what time is anymore. But the there's a lady who like fell on her metal straw and it killed her. It like went through her brain, and she died because she was using a reusable metal straw. And <laughs> you know, you can imagine Jesus. all the like all the like just absolute ghouls who are very into this kind of discourse being like, well, that's what you get for banning the plastic straws. If that was plastic, she'd still be alive. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty cool that that happened. I think, and that it was this, uh, you know, point of contention in our society. Uh, because like you said, you know, these tiny choices like that do not matter. And you can even, you know, people make the thing, the argument of, well, you know, that accumulates over time and, all this plastic in the landfills and, and you know, that I guess has a, a kernel of truth in it. But at the end of the day, it's really not going to do anything unless there's some sort of mass change on a structural governmental well, that, level. Yeah. It's so, um, secondary. It's like, yes, that's not a good thing to do, but it's also, it, let's say the fossil fuel industry doesn't exist and, and the straw industry does. You know, um, there there wouldn't if the fossil fuel industry didn't exist, there would be no such discourse as like, you know, pollution and, and environmentalist discourse. It wouldn't be a thing yeah, uh, because it would not be on our radar. So, yeah, it is a good example of like things being turned into battlegrounds. So if they're going to throw a hissy fit over straws, you can imagine if it's like we're taking your cars. Like no one's driving anymore. Right. Um, And, and, you know, a certain brand of over 50 white male Republicans, uh, have a particularly violent reaction to, uh, the idea of, uh, significantly regulating air travel. That's just like the last straw, (laughs) the last straw to them. (laughs) Uh, well, speaking of old uh, Republicans, I guess we should talk about the movie a little bit. Uh, so, yeah. I I watched this earlier today, um, like you did, I believe. Yep. And I've you know have heard about it. Everybody knows the line of Soylent Green is people. It was parodied in like every TV show ever. Um, so, watching it, I kind of didn't know what to expect, and I thought maybe it'd be this sort of B movie, like cult classic type thing. Uh, but actually I, I, I kind of dug it. I thought it was, uh, it was way better than I expected. That's for damn sure. Yeah. It was, it was doing some things that I did not expect. Uh, for instance, something we'll talk about later is the whole euthanasia scene. Yeah. Uh, which is like, it was interesting on a few levels. One of them is, is that if you did that today or just watching it today, because the, the sort of clips of nature that they're showing soul as he, as he's sort of dying, uh, look kind of weird and cheesy now, uh, because of, mm-hmm. you know, the technology of the time. Um, but the whole scene is, is like strangely powerful, uh, that more so than I thought felt, it would be. Uh, that scene particularly felt Kubrickian. Like uh, the whole, the whole movie, I thought, man, in the hands of a, of a more artful director, this movie would be fucking crazy. Uh, yes but that scene was was pretty damn good 
Yeah. And, and so this is, uh, it's based on this book, make room, make room by Harry Harrison, who I've had never heard of and only know of now because of this. And that's the worst title for a novel I've ever heard of. Uh, yeah. It's, it's not great. And the, the, two, two exclamation points in your title. Yeah. Rethink that. <laughs> and, uh, so that book's from, uh, I think 1966. Uh, so in the movies in 73, so it'd been around for a little while. And from what I can tell, the novel is way more concerned with overpopulation and that's kind of the thing it's focusing on. And the whole cannibalism aspect, part of the plot was added to the screenplay. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, that's an interesting kind of move to make. Yeah. I read, I read that somewhere. Um, I I'm interested in the book though, too, because something maybe, I don't know how intentional this is in the movie, but something that kind of terrified me as I was thinking about it is like, who is the bad guy? You know, it's yeah. like, I mean, you know who, who the bad guys are. It's like this corporation, but it's like nothing. They don't really go to any links to like characterize a bad guy. You know what I'm saying? To have mm-hmm. anyone embody evil, like every movie does. Um, and so, I mean, you have the guy at the beginning who basically allows himself to be assassinated. Um, but you know, he's clearly not the, uh, you know, he's not the man in the black hat kind of thing. Um, but it's, like I said, I don't know if that's intentional, but if it is, it, it's kind of creepy to have this like world, this, you know, this bureaucracy and industrial over overpopulated world. And like, there's no, like, where do you start to fight this? Because you don't even know who it is. Yeah. And I I even made this note and this is kind of going off of that, uh, where I, I basically wrote that on a very, extremely practical utilitarian way soylent green works (laughs) sort of does what it's supposed to do um and it's and the reason i say that is because early in the film when the um i i've forgotten his name already um uh simonson no i was thinking of simonson the the guy that lets himself be assassinated with the meat hook which is a nice little bit of symbolism i guess but he, uh, so he gets killed and then Thorn shows up and then eventually, um, the cleanup crew shows up and they're like, what do you want us to do with them? And Thorn says, take them to the waste management or whatever. And they're like, oh, they're filling up o- over there or they're full over there. So it's sort of like implied that there's so many people and so many people are dying that they no longer are able to process them, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, on a, on, if you look at it from just a purely, like evilly practical point of view it works as as a product and as a food source it's just sort of at the cost of the human soul right and and they emphasize that um what's i guess it her name's cheryl 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 i like to say it like you have a a deeply southern accent cheryl (laughs) like cheryl damn it cheryl (laughs) uh you know she talks about when she was a girl her grandmother died and they had a ceremony and it was lovely. Yeah. Um, 
when Cheryl yeah, was a and girl. Gone are those days. Uh, so, but but again, the movie kind of succumbs to its own moviness in a way like it, it you know it just focuses on charlton heston going around and bashing people with his <laughs> fists yeah. and his weapons uh but if the if the real problem is overpopulation shouldn't there maybe be something referred to in the film that suggests why the world is overpopulated or like how overpopulation occurs. And, and I don't really see, I mean, unless I'm just missed it, there doesn't really seem to be a reference to like, I mean, essentially technology, like medical technology is why popular, you know, overpopulation exists. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And we have the, that, kind of long opening sequence and for a second i was like are we watching kuya Nascati? <laughs> i thought the exact same thing and, and so you know it kind of takes you through very kind of like idyllic like out in nature like riding on the back of a horse cart sort of stuff to you know cities and and traffic jams and and atomic bombs going off and all this kind of stuff but it's never really made super explicit why things are so terrible other than overpopulation is a thing and then food is scarce but they don't really tell you why the ocean's dying they don't really explain why they do well, say it's that because of the greenhouse effect well yeah but that's so vague <laughs> <laughs> and I, right. I did appreciate how throughout the film everybody's just sweaty all the time yeah yeah at first i, I noticed that and i thought that's weird and i was like oh that's like <laughs> definitely intentional yeah and the whole because that, that's what global warming does yeah it's just uncomfortable it's just right it's universal it's like, swamp ass it's like do the right thing everyone's just like hot as fuck and their tempers are flaring thanks <laughs> greenhouse effect uh but I, I did like the how it shows kind of social stratification um because my favorite scene probably is when thorn goes to the murder scene and he's just stilling shit <laughs> so he steals like the the soap and he steals a bottle of liquor and he's he takes the pillow out of the pillowcase and like fills the silk pillowcase up with all the shit he stole and then um, he goes back to his boss at like the the bureau or whatever the guy's like what did you take from the crime scene he's like everything i could get my hands on. <laughs> and the boss it's is just, like hell yeah it's 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 just uh, uh par for the course yeah and it, i mean it's just him uh, going to the sink and turning on the the sink and being like, "Oh my God, you have running water!" And then later on, you know, the they take the shower together, him and him and Cheryl, and uh, just uh, looking at these everyday conveniences that are played in the movie as being like not universal anymore, like only the very rich and powerful have them. Uh, reminds me of that that uh, William T. Volman thing that I keep mentioning yeah. about turning the yeah, sink on, specifically the light bulb scene where the guys like you know, powering the light bulb with his stationary bike. Yeah. Cause that's the, the example Volman uses, right? Yeah. And it's a, uh, so I don't know. It's just, it, but there are other things that are, I guess everybody water's ration, but you have access to some of it at least. And then you can collect your food rations every so often on Tuesday. It's Soylent Green Day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that um, sounds like a cool band name. Soylent Green Day. <laughs> 
there is like a like a some kind of metal band called Soylent Green. Mm. Um, I, I think, and like all the people sleeping on the stairs. I want to talk about that for a second because that doesn't make sense to me because it, stairs are so uncomfortable. <laughs> well, there's that, and there's that. You'll see scene. So everything's super crowded all the time and the world's overpopulated and there are, you know, 40 million people are living in the city or whatever it was. Um, but then when, when, uh, Thorn is like out on the street at night, there's no one around. Right. Um, but there, everyone's there, like, apparently the 40 million people all go to bed in the stairwell. Yeah. Like they all sleep in his stairwell. Um, or they <laughs> sleep I, in that church. Did you notice when he comes into his apartment after stepping over all those people, he doesn't lock the door. Yeah. It's like ugh, all the people sleeping on the church floor and he's able to just like go in and hide among guns. them. He doesn't have to lock the door. Yeah. He's a badass. That, that fight yeah. scene at, in the church at the end is maybe the worst fight scene I've ever seen. <laughs> the guy keeps like grabbing him and like big punching him and he falls, he like flies 10 feet. Yeah. And then the guy just gets stabbed because he's an idiot. Um, but yeah, this just it, the whole living situation I thought was interesting because you have soul who apparently lives in his little book nook, his little like yeah. library in the back of the, the room that they share. Is it weird that I thought his apartment looked pretty cozy? Like, yeah, I it was, could live there. It was nice. It had a nice low ceiling, like makes you feel, you know, in a like, hobbit. Yeah, you're like a something. bear in a cave. Just, yeah. I'm a big he fan had of all that. those books. Because apparently, yeah, it didn't didn't seem that bad to me, especially when he got you know had the liquor. Yeah, that that mill. I want to compare that mill to the mill they have in the bunker in the road. I was, I, if that's exactly where I was taking it. Even the even the the liquor, you know, and the cannibalism, and, and, and the whole thing of like you know nostalgia for the luxuries of the past. Yeah. Whereas in the road, it's like Jack Daniels, and I think what was it like a candy bar? What was it that they're eating? Why can't I remember uh, this? There's like Dorito or like Ch- Cheetos or yeah, something. Yeah, some like kind that. of thing. But in this, it's like beef and celery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vegetables are the thing that they're nostalgic for. And that meal, it, something I noticed is that they, they seem to, between them, drink most of a bottle of bourbon. And neither of them are drunk. <laughs> which I thought was cool. It's like all manly men. They know how to hold their liquor. It's because it's Edward G. Robinson and Charlton Heston. They don't get drunk. No, they just get more powerful. If anything, that bottle got a little bit of got a little bit Heston. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and they they cook their they turn the beef into like a stew. I guess like it's just interesting. And I, I don't know the the way that it was played was that Soul was like the old guy that was around, sort of like John Lithgow's character in Interstellar, who yeah, had been yeah. around. Um, and then Thorne was supposed to be like the, the younger guy who never knew that world. But Heston looks so old. Even though so he's like old. 60 or something. I know. Heston looks so old. You're like, Jesus, how old is Soul supposed to be? Right. And how old is this girl supposed to be? She looks like she's like, I guess they say she's like in her 20s. Uh, and she looks like it. And it's just like, it's a little bit weird. And they, uh, the, well, yeah. It's, that, that it's not alluded to as strange. Yeah. And the the movie has that sort of like older Hollywood kind of misogyny feel to it. Oh yeah. Um, especially because <laughs> the ha- women are, are called furniture. Yeah. They're, <laughs> yeah. They're furniture. They, and they, they stay with the apartment. Right. Um, so the next tenant, if they want her can keep her, which of um, course we're, we're, we're uh, maybe a little bit conflating 
the you know the critique in the film with the uh politics of the actors of the film well uh, yeah obviously the the that the women exist as furniture in the film is a ironic critique um but but there is uh, in addition to that there is just some some old school uh misogyny yeah but you know what's not a uh sort of a misplaced critique i think i think is that um you have thorn and or cheryl falling in love with thorn and, well, and that's strange <laughs> It happens so quickly, and it happens because Thorne just kind of walks in when she's hanging out with the other furniture, and is like, "Hey, come in here a minute." And he's like, "Get in the bed," and they just get naked and hop in the bed. Um, and then, you know, five minutes later, she's like, "Thorne, I love you. Let me live with you." And it's just sort of a strange relationship. <laughs> yeah, Jensen and I were watching it, and uh, there's that scene where they're like in the shower, you know, and their mm-hmm. bodies are like silhouette. And they're like and doing can... that weird movie laugh that's just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they, it was like <laughs> they were laughing so hard. I was like, are they are they like watching an episode of Friends or something in there? Like, what's going on? <laughs> they were just like cackling, like there was something hilarious happening in there. It, uh, yeah, it's supposed to be like he this told, joyous. He, like, told thing. a really good joke or something. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, that was just a weird scene, and that's that's kind of what I'm talking about is because. He is there and then like the dude shows up and starts beating all the other women and Thorn jumps in and like saves them like is the protector. He rides in on his horse and stops the guy and then he goes back in the room with, with Cheryl and she's like, oh, Thorn, don't be so upset and like trying to make him feel better as if he's the one that's been like abused. Um, and then he goes to leave and she's like, no, please stay. We can take a hot shower <laughs> like that. It's just, it was very strange. Yeah. It's like just male fantasy for sure. Oh, definitely. And like, again, you've got, you've got old school Hollywood in the lead, leading male role and in the director. So, yeah. Um, see what else is, I, I kind of like jotted down things. Um, um so the something i noticed is uh the role of kind of like knowledge and access and access to knowledge that sort of thing so you have soul uh collecting his books and he's i guess supposed to be like a human computer almost um kind of like a fact checker knowledge haver book reader guy Mm-hmm. Um, and Thorne brings him those, uh, you know, oceanographic surveys or whatever that ends up being the, the big kind of smoking gun. Um, but it's, it's weird. He, you know, and soul talks about, they don't print books anymore cause there's no paper and nowhere to print them and all that sort of stuff. So it's sort of implied that no one in this world has anywhere to get knowledge from other than the TV, I guess, sort of what's mm. told to them. Um, and the whole thing at the end of the film is is uh, Soul telling Thorn, you know, you have to get proof. You have to go and see and, you know, find out that this is happening. And then that's when you get the scene that was kind of cool where he, like, hops in the, the garbage truck, the human truck, I guess, and, like, rides into the yeah, facility. Yeah, what's, what's clearly a, a stunt double hops into the dump truck. Yes. <laughs> and then you see Heston, like, like, on the roof. like, 40 pounds lighter than Charles Heston. Uh 
but it's just it, the film has this interesting thing it does where it's like in this world there would be a breakdown in you know education and access to to knowledge and that's why you have this enormous population under the hill of this one corporation that makes this food that isn't very good i mean soul talks about how it's garbage you know and he sees thorn eating it and he's like well you don't know any better you don't know that that's not real food mm-hmm. um so I, I just thought that was an interesting thing that the film does that other films don't really do as much because even in like children of men the population is like very aware of where they are and kind of what's going on and you know i'm sure that there's some level of like government propaganda going on in that world but you don't really you get some of the tv spots of like only britain prevails that sort of thing yeah. um but in soylent green it seems like they have their tv that like some of them can watch but other than that everyone's just sort of scrambling to survive it's a real it, it had a kind of desperation to it that i didn't expect it to have mm-hmm. so well i i knew that we were in for something you know worth watching just from that opening sequence of like you know the, that sort of felt koyanis katsi-esque uh what a word i did not expect anything that um uh, accurate you know to be portrayed in this in this movie um so yeah like, like we said at the beginning it's there's there's some decent thoughts happening um but it, it one constraint is I think that sort of old school Hollywood um, orientation that the leading man and the director are kind of steeped in. Um, I, I, one comparison we haven't made yet that I think is kind of obvious that I sh- I'm sure we would have gotten to eventually is uh, uh, Okja. Yeah, I kind of forgot we, we had done Okja. Yeah, like the whole ending sequence where he's sort of infiltrated this factory that is producing Soylent Green was, to me, very uh, reminiscent of, you know, not the final scene, but one of the, you know, towards the end of Okja when when the big confrontation happens, it happens in the factory. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to before we started recording, we were talking about... Um, looking back at like some animal rights kids movies from the nineties. And yeah. it, it makes me think of, you know, in the seventies, you have soil and green. And then now we have Okja, which is a very similar kind of concept, except mm-hmm. it's with this genetically engineered animal as opposed to people. Right. And because of that, and but well, because of the way it's shot and the way it's written and the, the kind of visceral viscerality, visceralness, what it, whatever the fucking word is of, of Okja, um, that film is much harder to watch than Soylent Green, which has no explicit violence. Really? You don't even, you see the people going in up on a conveyor belt and then you see them coming out as those green crackers, mm-hmm. but that's kind of all you see. But in Okja, we, we, so we love Okja so much and just like identify with, the little girl and have this empathy for this very anthropomorphized kind of animal um, that it makes that movie a, a really kind of tough watch in parts. And it's sort of interesting to think that the what's going on in Soylent Green is in a lot of ways far more horrendous than what's going on in Okja. But when you watch the two movies, it does not feel that way. Yeah. And that like you, like you're pointing out, it's, it's because of, well, first of all, it's because of the, 
skill of the filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, but it's also because of the rhetorical um, characterization, which I guess is probably a product of the skill of the filmmaker. Um, yeah, it's it's almost like the Soylent Green is too is too plot driven. It's like kind of obsessed with its own concept to where it can't humanize the kind of moral the moral problem that it is pointing out. We we would have to be endeared to. I mean, we, I guess we don't have to be endeared to any particular person for this to be effective because we theoretically understand that this is a horrendous act, but we don't feel it the way we feel it in Okja because the movie Soylent Green has not taken the rhetorical pains that Okja takes to endear us to the characters. Yeah. Because it really, you know, you're saying you don't know. It's hard to tell who the bad guys are in Soylent Green. Like we get that Thorn is the protagonist, but I don't really identify with Thorn at all. Um, for one no. reason, for one, he's a cop and, you know, fuck cops, but right. he, but he also is just kind of, he's just kind of like a smarmy kind of douchey guy. I mean, you identify with soul, I think more than, or I did, uh, more yeah. so than any of the other characters. <laughs> yeah. Um, says the PhD. Yeah. Uh, who, I, you know, I, 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 I hope know. I can if live as good as soul in the future. <laughs> Are people, were people in the seventies, I guess, more primed to identify with Charlton Heston, I guess. Um, I guess you just, I guess maybe it'd be like watching a Tom Cruise movie now or something where you just, of course, of course this is the good guy. Of course I'm supposed to identify with him. Um, I don't know. Maybe that, even that's kind of an outdated reference now, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who the replacement is. Shane Falco. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always Shane Falco. It's <laughs> it's a old Rambo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, there's not really any you know, part of it. Might be just that it's a product of the times that it was in which it was made. Uh, but it's just Charlton Heston doesn't do anything for me. Not till he uh, shimmies out of those trousers. <laughs> I, I did like I, I enjoyed his outfit because he kind of looked like what every grandpa looked like when I was a kid. He's rocking that sort of uh, makeshift ascot. Yeah, <laughs> like he just looks like old men I would see in the barber shop when I was a kid. Just just rocking a blue hat that says absolutely goddamn nothing on it. <laughs> But it's it's necessary, apparently, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, it was a strange wardrobe choice. And it, I just remember the scene when he's uh, when he's at the crime scene and he's standing in front of the air vent and he's like opening his jacket and he's like basking in the cold air. Um, I don't know. He like takes off his uh, his neckerchief when he's at the sink and he's like, oh, <laughs> cold water. I didn't think we'd ever on this podcast have occasion to say the word neckerchief. Neckerchief. His ascot. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, it was a strange wardrobe choices for the whole police uh, 
unit. And then when shit hits the fan, they just go put on their uh, football helmets. <laughs> God. Yeah, that was, uh, that took me out of that scene a little bit, which is supposed to be this big, like, action packed climactic scene, or not climactic, but like a big deal. Um, you know, a lot of extras. And they're just walking around in like old ass football helmets. <laughs> Yeah, with like the one bar <laughs> across. I don't I don't know what's going on there. And they're dumping people into the back of dump tr- of the garbage trucks. And it's yeah. so funny cuz the one dude just climbs back. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> the whole time I was like there's got to be a better way to like control the population. I I don't know it's not, you know, this movie's made in 72. They're imagining 50 years in the future. But like can't you imagine some sort of, I don't know, sleeping gas or something that would like knock a bunch of people out so that you wouldn't have <laughs> you mean, to. You mean tear gas? Just I- anything that would like neutralize the situation as opposed to bringing in dump trucks to scoop them up with. Uh, and I guess it's supposed to while like. While they're still able bodied. Yeah. Like, I guess it's supposed to like symbolize like this is how thick the people are is that you can scoop them into the back of a truck, but it's just kind of right, right. And, and I get that stupid. and I get the, the, what we're supposed to see is people as, as objects, as things, you know, to be discarded and scooped up and disposed of. And I, and I guess that works as a metaphor but it, it only works in the movie. Like metaphors only work in movies if they make amount of, a certain amount of like conscious plot driven sense, you know? Yeah. Which that does not. Which that does not. <laughs> um, yeah. And the, I don't, in the, the assassin, like that's when the guy tries to shoot Thorn and that guy, the, the assassin was one of the weirder characters. I thought, yeah, his facial expressions were like ambivalent as fuck. It's sort of like the end of Sling Blade, the scene where he kills the guy toward the beginning. It reminded me of Sling Blade. It was like, go on, do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the guy's like, he tells tells uh, Simonson the guy like why he's got to kill him, and Simonson's like, no, it's what's best for God or whatever weird shit it is that he says. And then the guy's like. Okay, I'm going to do it now. <laughs> he just beats his head. And then he goes full Patrick Bateman on him. Yeah, it's, it's just, it was strange. And the yeah, guy is was, such, he's so creepy. cheery about it, the assassin. Yeah, he's got the weirdest looks on his faces. That's what I mean. He's got these, like, he's kind of happy, but he's also kind of menacing. Yeah. Uh, and his haircut is just terrible. It's like uh, that scene you showed me in Cliffhanger. <laughs> the guy's holding the rope and he's like, ah. oh, man. we've got to do that one sometime. Yeah. When, uh, at the beginning, when, uh, when the girl's dying or about to die, if you look in the background of, of on the, on the side, that's not Sylvester Stallone with the, the guy whose girlfriend is dying, the pilot, I guess he's the, the helicopter pilot, the older guy is smiling like the devil during this scene. Yeah, it's it pretty, is terrifying. Pretty crazy. It's like that. And then there's the scene in uh, uh, Mr. Nanny, the Hulk Hogan movie, where oh, he's yeah. like riding a motorcycle. Is this the thing Jeremy Yes, yeah. He's <laughs> yeah. riding a motorcycle. And then you look in the background and there's a guy that just like picks up a dog and throws it like over a railing, like into the ocean. And it's not 
part of the film at all. Anyway, Jesus. cool uh, little like uh, Easter eggs. I don't know if you'd call them that. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to call animal murder an Easter egg. <laughs> I guess unless yeah, unless that's... three days three days later he rises from the dead. That's a, a real Easter egg. But uh, I have no idea what you'd call that. Oh, man. An- animal abuse. <laughs> um. Okay. <laughs> See what I'm trying to think of getting back to oh, the yeah. film here. Soylent Green. We went far afield with Mister Nanny. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the the euthanasia thing a little bit because it, it kind of reminded me of Children of Men, where euthanasia is sort of like a a thing that's around in that world, and it seems to be kind of around in a lot of sort of dystopian sort of movies, even in the road, the big thing is saving the bullets so they can kill themselves. Um, and in this, I I just thought the way that it was presented was pretty cool because they make it seem super nice and like well thought out. And he, you know, he's at the facility where there's a lot of other people already there like waiting and, you know, he fills out the forms like his favorite color and all that sort of stuff. And then the people in the weird, like white robes with gold trim, lead him to the room and give him like the cup of Kool-Aid or whatever it was, like the hemlock and he drinks it. And then he just lays back and enjoys his like IMAX experience as he's dying. And you can't really blame him. You like, you see the shittiness of the world around him and you know what he's lost in, you know, in his life. And you're just like, yeah, I can see, I can see that being a viable option or, Maybe the exact opposite of a viable option. I thought for a second, I thought you were going to say I could see that being a uh, a viable business. Because <laughs> I was thinking about like they're making like like I don't know if it's free. I guess not. Maybe it's like a government offered thing. It's like instead of Medicare, we have euthanasia facilities, which we're probably like not very far from that in real life. Yeah, we're I'd say we're fifteen years from that. Uh, not really, but. Yeah, like and like I said, there that was a I think that scene has a sort of um, standing in in kind of cult in the cult movie world because it was uh this was Edward G. Robinson's last film and so this is his death scene in the movie and sort of his final scene in movies. And, and so I think a lot of critics paid attention to that and it's kind of a badass way to go either way you look at it. It is. It's weird because it's a very like curated kind of institutional like experience in the, in the world of the film, but it is like, it has like a level of agency to it. That's kind of nice. And the fact that it's it's curated to him. It's a very long scene for for the, I mean, the movie's an hour and a half, and this scene is probably ten minutes. You know. Yeah, and this is like you were saying. You know, uh, if this was a Kubrick film, that becomes like one of the best scenes in movie history. <laughs> right. Um, but imagine like somebody remake. Like I really, I, like I, I bitch about remakes a lot, but I feel like this would be a really great candidate for that. If you get someone. Yeah. You know, Dennis, with some De- Denny Villeneuve or however you say that guy's name, yeah, the Blade Runner, yeah, he would fucking crush this movie. Yes. Uh, or you know anybody with like the right scope, right? Like imagine 
uh, like PT Anderson being like, oh, I'm going to remake Swing the Green. Um, <laughs> like in that, that scene, if you imagine like, like the scene itself as it exists now is, is great, but just imagining that in like 2019's. Uh, you know who you know, I just thought of would be the greatest director to remake it is, uh, and I'm only thinking of him because I saw a preview for his new movie, uh, which is called Climax, and it's Gaspar No, the guy who made Irreversible and Love. You know what I'm talking about? I don't think so. Oh man, yeah. Do you, do you know Irreversible? No, I, I don't. Oh, that doesn't man. ring any bells. It's, it's unwatchable. It is so fucked up. Um, Anyway, check out Gaspar No and j- just watch the trailer for his movie Climax. It's like a uh, a super fucked up dance flick. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's step up to the streets. There's another one of those like super hard to watch movies uh, in festivals right now called The Painted Bird. It's mm. a World War Two. Uh, it's based on a novel that was written that apparently the novel was largely plagiarized, but it's about a, a kid who's like alone sort of drifting through Eastern Europe during the war and just all these awful fucking things that happen. There's a lot of sexual violence and actually, you know, regular violence. Hmm. Have um, you just, uh, I'm just thinking about trailers I've seen now. Have you seen the trailer for uh, the Adam Divine movie? I think it's a Netflix thing called... Jexy. No. And it's it's like a clear it's so uh it will definitely remind you of her, where it's like about his relationship with his phone, but it's like, you know, a silly comedy kind of thing. Yeah. Um I'm I'm interested to see it just to see um you know how the what it does with the kind of tropes that it shares with Spike Jones is her. No, yeah, I'll watch it. I've been watching uh, the Righteous Gemstones. With oh, Adam, is that Adam on Divine. now? Yeah, it, they're the fourth fourth episode is tomorrow. Now we're just going to oh, talk about man. things that we like, things yeah. that we've seen. Our new podcast, shit we've seen. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would recommend that show very, very much. So it does not hmm. disappoint. Um, but back to Soylent Green. That so the, this euthanasia scene just. Uh, like you're saying, it's like 10 minutes long. It's by far kind of the longest sustained part of the film, I feel like. And yeah. just the, the impact of the music with the visuals kind of blending together. And then you also get uh, Thorns and Soul's reaction to them, where you have Soul who's like, has sort of experienced that world kind of, and is, you know, having this very kind of emotional reaction. You have Heston who's actually doing a, a good little bit of acting as you know he's watching and he has this sort of look of you know bewilderment on his face at the things that he's seeing um which makes you wonder like you know i was talking about access to to knowledge and stuff like do people just not know what the ocean looks like or does wilderness not exist anymore like that that sort of those sorts of questions yeah. uh, but in that scene it's like the two the both of them kind of line up really well with how they're acting it. And I think it works extremely well. It was by far my favorite scene in the movie. 
And that's yeah, all I've got I, uh, to say about that. I really, I, I definitely think that is the standout scene. I, like I said, I though I really like the ending too, when uh, Thorn is running around the factory. Yeah. And like I said, I got a seriously eerie feeling with the fact that, you know, here's this giant corporation doing this horrible, you know genocide or and I guess it, not genocide but it's they're exploiting genocide you know yeah. uh, I don't know I didn't think anything was worse than genocide but maybe exploiting genocide for profit um, and and he's running around this factory and there's no one there you know there's he, like he four runs dudes. into like two low-level employees yeah. who do not look to be in charge of anything and the fact that all this is happening with no, you know, wizard behind the curtain somewhere, it's, you know, it's like you kind of keep waiting uh, for like a snow piercer moment to have this confrontation with the Ed Harris type, you yeah. know, engineer, conductor or whatever. And it just never comes. And like I said, I don't know if if this is a result of a of a bad screenplay where they're just like, oh, we don't have time for a bad guy. Or if they are, you know, suggesting the facelessness of of uh, amoral bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah, I much prefer that the, the latter yeah. uh, as far as, yeah. you know, just making it seem like it's so mundane that it's not even, you know, one evil person at the top. It's just sort of the the board got together and decided that this was the best move to make to increase mm-hmm. cells or whatever it was. Um, and it's kind of funny, like, so Thorn is spotted by the, the two guys that seem to be running the whole factory and, uh, they, they chase him like up a ladder and stuff where I feel like that's not very true to, to blue collar work. Cause if I'm that guy, I see him, I'm like, that's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call the manager. I'm not doing that. Yeah. Uh, and then he like marks them both. Or at least one of them definitely dies, and the other guy is maybe like unconscious. Yeah, there's actually a really strange moment. So he, the first guy, clearly falls to his bloody death, and then the second guy he knocks onto some little platform yeah, chain, and then thing. and then he falls down onto like the conveyor belt thing, and there's like a two second shot of thorn watching him. It's like he's concerned for his safety. It's like, did you forget how you just? murdered his you know co-worker like <laughs> 10 seconds ago by pushing him off this huge ladder and the way he does it it's like the dude is like clinging to the rail with one hand and heston's like pushing him away as he's like prying his fingers off the rail <laughs> it's like kicks him <laughs> off um but i think like you're saying i think if you were going to play up that kind of evil corporation angle a, a cool way to do that uh would have been to be more explicit about the link between the euthanasia facility and the like processing waste disposal, you know, people processing plant. Um, because that's how Thorne kind of figures it out as he goes down to where they're loading the bodies of people that have come here and, you know, uh, killed themselves. And he's like, Oh, I wonder where they're taking him. And then he follows the truck. If you would have been like, Oh, the, you know, Soylent or the company that makes Soylent, whatever it was called, you know, also runs this euthanasia center 
and they're using that to fuel the factory to make Soylent Green to feed the people, other people like that. You know, now you got a soup going like that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And it sort of capital, you know, it emphasizes the kind of, um, you know, banal evil of this corporation, but that's not really, mm-hmm. it's not made very explicit. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to know what's intentional and what's not in this movie. Like what's left out and what is un, you know, unscrutinized. Yeah. And, you know, for all the reasons we've said already of screenwriter, director, actors, time period, all that kind of stuff. Um, but even with all that in mind, it's still, I think it holds up pretty well. Um, of course, you know, this is made in the, the time of like, gas rationing or i guess maybe not even that maybe that was later on in the 70s um but now it's sort of there are the cheesy things like oh it's set in 2022 and they're still using like revolvers and everything still looks like 1970s new york that sort of stuff um but that sort of underlying kind of general kind of malaise that the people have and Mm -hmm. uh you know uh the fear of rationing and further rationing and the inability to, you know, get products any longer for whatever reasons, you know, they mentioned a jar of strawberries is $150 or whatever. 150 D's. <laughs> it's a lot of D's. <laughs> um, uh, no, you said so, the word uh, banal just a, a few minutes ago, or I guess 30 seconds ago. And it reminded me of a, of a uh, part in this uh, essay that we were talking about earlier called The Imagination of Disaster by Susan Sontag. And she's talking about sort of tropes in science fiction films. And towards the end of the essay, she writes, Ours is indeed an age of extremity, for we live under continual threat of two equally fearful but seemingly opposed destinies unremitting banality and inconceivable terror end quote so it sort of seems like in Soylent Green you kind of see those two things operating with each other it's like this factory is looks like any other factory they might as well be manufacturing and producing you know Twinkies or whatever Um, but it turns out it's human it's human beings that they're human converting twinkies. into food. It's people. Um, so yeah, you see this this uh, unremitting banality in the in the uh, processes of this industrial factory, which might as well be making anything else, and yet you see this uh, sort of inconceivable terror in the fact that it is human beings you know, that has been integrated into this banal process. And there's something, and like, uh, it just seems, it's very unsettling to me, especially since there's not a bad guy. There's like no one to blame it on. <laughs> Ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Which Holding is, a mirror which up is to maybe society. the coolest part about this movie. In the ending, and the, the sort of ambiguity of, yeah, you have Thorn, you know, screaming, soiling green as people, but 
Does anyone hear him? Does anyone care? Is anything going to happen? Yeah. And even if they do hear him and even if they do care, it's like, where do they start to take action against it? Who do they attack? Where do they attack? I guess maybe they, they go fuck up the factory. I get, but then the corporation then what controls if, what like they, the world what food eat? supply. Yeah, <laughs> like what, they just all starve to death. But they proved a point. Yeah, it's sort of it, it'd be interesting uh, to like extrapolate the story out and be like, okay, now everyone's been made aware that Soylent Green is in fact people. Like, how many people just like shrug and are like, okay, <laughs> can we still get it on Tuesdays? People taste good. Yeah, it's like I don't know, man. It's better than the other one. Have you tried it with a little bit of cheese, little <laughs> shredded mozzarella on top? Uh, make a little people pizza. Little soylent green peppers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, or well, just that ambiguity. I think is very kind of maybe ahead of its time a little bit. Although in the seventies, you get a lot of that sort of moral ambiguity, sort of antihero stuff churning up in movies. Um, so this is right around the right time period for it, but it was, it was nice. I think that it wasn't so clean and there wasn't a, you know, 100% resolution of, of the conflict. Yeah. Bureaucracy is kind of a hard thing to depict yeah. uh, in a sensational way, you know, because it is categorically unsensational. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you see it in, uh, see a lot of different attempts in film to depict bureaucracy. I think uh, one movie I really like is uh, an Akirasawa movie called Ikiru from the 50s, I think, um, which is not really about a bureaucracy, but a, a man trying to sort of live outside of a bureaucracy. But even more so, I'm reminded of like Terry Gilliam's uh, Brazil. Yeah. Um, which is in some ways a terrifying movie, but I, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that in the end does not come around to, you know, having some sort of nameable, identifiable, evil villain, you know, bad guy. Yeah. It's like a, just thinking about this. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the good place. The TV the show sitcom. Yeah. The Michael, no. Michael Schur, no. uh show. And it, yeah, I've seen, I've watched all the episodes and I, I don't love it, but I just kind of keep watching it because it'll have a few like good laughs every now and then. Uh, but for the most part, it's kind of tedious and it's a thinly veiled like criticism of Trump or whatever. Uh, but one thing I love about it is that it presents uh, the afterlife and heaven the good place specifically as being just one big bureaucracy <laughs> and there's this like major you know fuck up malfunction in it but they can't fix it because they're like well we got to follow the rules for nothing we can do um and it's just sort of interesting to, to see it presented in that way and played for comedy instead of utter terror which is what i think it should be played as some <laughs> kind of like uh kafkaesque nightmare yeah um yeah but, you know, early, ironically enough, earlier today I ate a, a Beyond Burger for the first time. What is that? You know, the Beyond Meat. It's like no. it, they they advertise it as being the vegetable patty 
vegetable-based patty that's closest to real meat. Hmm. Um, and like some fast food places have them now, like White Castle had it for a while. And now I think Burger King has like a Beyond Whopper. And I had a, hmm. a Beyond Burger. And it's, it was weird. It looked like meat. It tasted like meat. It had the same texture. You know, usually with like a vegetable-based patty, it'll be like flaky or something will be you know, off about it being exactly like meat, which is fine because I, I don't eat it because I'm like, oh, it's just like meat. I eat it because I like it and it tastes good and it's healthy and all that shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I bit into this thing and I was like, this is kind of uncanny. Like, I don't I don't know if I like <laughs> this. Uh, it's a little strange how much like meat this is. And so right yeah, after I'm, that, I went I'm and watched Soylent Green. I'm a little skeptical of food that's been invented in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Um, or like lab grown meat is another thing that I have no experience with, but I've heard of it as being like an alternative to, uh, you know, agriculture and stuff like that. And it's just, so I ate that and then I went and watched Soylent Green and I was like, Hmm. (laughs) Well, I was thinking earlier that there's a real parallel between that kind of relationship between soul and, uh, thorn where he's like, Oh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't remember. Um, you know, you don't know what you're missing sort of thing. And kind of the industrial food culture we have today in America and the organic local movement, which is mostly in pop culture, the the object of ridicule and satire. Uh, but but what I'm getting at is you'll sometimes you'll see like a bumper sticker or a meme or something that'll say something along the lines of, uh, eat real food or, or as your grandparents would have called it food, you know? Uh, and so I, I still think you, you see that dynamic between older generations and younger generations in 2019 that, that is depicted in soil and green between soul and, uh, thorn. And, and there's, there's a kind of frustration you know, I'm 32, but I feel, I guess, probably more in line with, in terms of my definitions of food, with, with maybe what my grandparents would would consider food. Um, so, so in some ways, I think that that uh, aspect of the film is still very, very much with us. Yeah, and there is, uh, you know you talk about like the slow food movement and all this sort of stuff. And it does, it almost always seems to harken back to like earlier days. If you go to a farmer's market and they like dress it up with like old farming equipment or whatever, and like make it look like a cracker barrel sort of. Um, right. It's like, why do we have to make this look old for it to be good? Why yeah. can't, why can't we have this food in 2019? Yeah. Like why, why is it like down home? quote unquote and like retro to to go and buy some like corn (laughs) that was that was grown nearby and that's another thought i had about we sort of started this episode talking about charlton heston's politics and you know the how uh environmentalism wasn't as uh polarized politically as it is today and and in a way, it sort of makes sense for a old Hollywood right actor to be on the side of 
of uh, this particular environmental issue, the issue of sort of traditional agriculture, because this is kind of a conservative thing. Um, and I think we've talked about this on a different episode, how preposterous it is that, that this, uh, things like gardening have become so politicized that, that something is kind of benign and old school as gardening has become associated with like bleeding heart, tree hugging left radicals. Like there's nothing radical or there shouldn't be anything radical about gardening. It's what your grandmother does. You know, um, it's, it's, it's just crazy how politicized, uh, is become. And it's, uh, it's because something happened, you know, somewhere in between world war two and Reagan, you know, something happened. Yeah, it's to well, where it, and it's and it's it's really the emergence uh, or the death of liberalism, the death of conservatism, and the rise of neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Whatever, whatever happened to change, you know that 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 required this redefinition of our basic political leanings. It is the reason that this issue reversed, you know, to where things like gardening became liberal signifiers yeah especially weird because you think about like the 80s and early 90s and like farm aid and you know the the just sort of destruction of all these you know generations old family farms throughout the midwest and it still happens today with you know farmers having to you know survive on government subsidies and uh, committing suicide because they can't just can't scratch out a living anymore. They're worth more dead than alive to their families. Yeah. The real kind of Willie Loman effect yeah. and uh, death of a farmer. That should be our, our play will write, but you know, in world war two or around that area, you know, you have gardening just as a thing people did to eat. And, and then on top of that, you have victory gardens, right? Where the government's like, grow your own vegetables. So we don't have to supply them. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, Post World War II, everything's incredibly industrialized. Food production becomes incredibly industrialized, and then once people don't have to grow things anymore, and it's like, oh, I can get a can of, you know, peaches. I don't have to worry about growing a peach. Um, kind of takes off from that. You know, this is a, a really gross simplification of, of <laughs> what happened to get to this point. Yeah, but uh, but not an. Not an untrue one either. Um, So now it's a hobby. Like gardening is is a hobby. It's not something you do uh, for subsistence for the most part for most people, right? And it's just weird, uh, uh, weird inversion. Like you were saying that if you go to like a farm to table restaurant, you're going to pay out the ass mm -hmm. as opposed to if you go to like McDonald's. (laughs) And, you know, again, there's a lot more that goes into it than that. But that that has become the sort of, commodified and sort of hoity-toity bougie thing and because of that it's seen as being kind of a more liberal position to be into you know self-sustaining local produce elitist you know people associate it with a sort of elitism but it's like it's so the opposite of that it is a it is a self-reliant position Um, and it's 
increasingly it's like you, you called it a hobby and that's a perfect word for it because it's like something additional. It's like something extra people do gardening or farming is like, uh, you know, you get, uh, for instance, my neighbor, uh, a guy named Kyrie, um, clearly grew up in the country. Uh, he is just, he rode over, uh, to my house the other day on a, on a horse with a lasso to like wrangle his cow. Um, and he like gives me fresh eggs every week and, you know, he's got goats and sheep and everything. And he works at like a, some sort of factory, um, weird, like late hours. And yet on the weekend, you know, he's doing all these things, raising these animals. And I, I remember thinking, God, it must've been very, um, there must have been a lot of pressure on people when when your work was your livelihood, you know, like when your gardening and your farming was what your family depended on for survival. There must have been a lot of pressure, um, you know, because you couldn't just go get a job at a factory and have money to, you know, to, to live on. Uh, but at the same time, there must have been a lot of real satisfaction to that and knowing that like you just woke up and you went outside and this land was, you know, the land that you had to, to live from. And of course this is a, a sort of privileged sector of the population. I'm not, I don't want to romanticize it too much. Um, cause obviously I'm talking about land owning white men who had this land to live from. But, uh, Assuming that social progress could have been made um, for minorities and things like that, I think there's a, a level of satisfaction from work that is categorically unattainable in, in a system like we have today of alienated labor and, and labor completely divorced from the essentials of living like food. Yeah, and I would definitely agree. I think we we should clarify that uh, you don't live like in the heart of the city or anything. Uh, no, so no, people no. don't get the wrong idea about like what Tennessee is like. <laughs> you know, you you know you don't live in like downtown Murfreesboro. You live kind of out on the outskirts, like out in the county yeah. somewhere. Yeah, I'm like uh, ten ten or twelve miles from the city center. Yeah, uh, where you know someone can still, if they so choose and are willing to do the work, like you're saying, you know, he's working his job and then coming in when he can like working with the animals and stuff that you can, yeah. you can have that kind and of life if you really, really try to have it. Yeah. There's like eight burger Kings in Murfreesboro. Don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, it, it went from the kind of lifestyle that, that we're talking about where you're very much in tune with the land that you occupy, right? The whole Wendell Berry thing of being, in place being in a area and you know it and you're connected with it and you sort of have the symbiotic relationship standing for what you stand on. Yeah. Whereas now it's, it's more like adversarial, you know, it's like, Oh, I got to cut down this tree. I got this, these weeds growing in my yard. I got this wildlife coming in. I got to get rid of these deer or whatever. Um, like, uh, our house in Alabama, 
we have all this kudzu because it's Alabama and there's kudzu everywhere. Um, so like the whole, like, oh, you, you've I'm, seen I meant it. to say, man, my condolences on that, uh, hurricane Dorian. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been a real shit show down here. Uh, you just got, you just got destroyed by yeah. this, like this crazy black line of Sharpie. There's not a f- Southern Alabama. Yeah, there, there's not a flashlight or a gallon of milk to be found. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, so we have this kudzu like covering everything and I, I was walking around the yard with the dog the other day and I, I noticed that they're, you know, the people come, the company we rent from like send people and they like cut the grass for us, which is really nice. <laughs> um, uh, you know, a little bit of work that I'm not sad to be missing out on. Um, but they sort of like keep the kudzu at bay kind of. And I went out there and you can see like individual vines that are sort of shooting out into the yard, kind of like searching, trying to like find the next area that they can take over. Mm. And I had this like weird vision of, I should just let this kudzu grow over everything and like grow onto the roof of the house and just have this canopy of kudzu that we live under. <laughs> just this green That'd cocoon. Cool. Yeah. Um, living in a house made of vines. Um, but like you know, it's, it's cool, but it's a metaphor. Yeah, it's not something I could actually do. Uh, but it's it's interesting thing about things like that and how it's very much like it's adversarial. It's very much like a battle for people living in the modern world to try to keep nature at bay or keep it out sort of as best they can. Well, and, and so, you know, talking about Soylent Green has led us to this discussion. And is this what the filmmakers wanted? Because there's, you know, we can do this because we, these are the type of things we think about. But what is it in the movie that points us to this conversation? If, if we, uh, assuming we haven't, you know, read a shitload of Wendell Berry and, and, you know, other people, like what, is there anything in the movie that just like points to this conversation? We, you know, when you watch the movie, you think, okay corporations should not convert human waste into food. Okay. But what should, you know, what, what are the problems with overpopulation? What are the problems with industrial agriculture? Um, It's just very light on those things. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I read a synopsis of uh, make room, make room and, the big sort of climax at the end of that book is that you find out the, the world population had reached 340 million or whatever. Uh, or no, no, sorry. The population of the country had reached 340 million, mm-hmm. which is like, we have more people than that right now. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's interesting to think about people that still harp on overpopulation. It's not like, you know, overpopulation is only a problem in so much as we manage it poorly and fail to, uh, you know, allocate resources to people that need them and allocate food and distribute things in a, in a manner that supports that population. Um, yeah. Any, anyone who, who thinks the primary issue is overpopulation uh, is not paying attention to the fact, like, like I heard Bernie Sanders say the other day, it's like not just the top 1%, the top three people in the country own you know, have more wealth than like the bottom 40% or whatever it is. Yeah. And three individuals. 
Yeah, and, and it's, it's like it's about it's about resource allocation. Yeah, and they didn't they didn't get that money through the sweat of their brow and rolling up rolling up their sleeves, right? Like there's there's something right. else happening there. Um, uh, forgot what I was saying before. Uh, now I'm just thinking about Bernie Sanders. Um, we were talking. You were talking about overpopulation. And- oh yeah, and it's it's very like it, it goes into like you start getting into like eco fascist territory, right? Yeah. Of we got to close the borders, not because I hate brown people, but because we have to control our resources and manage them and all that sort of stuff. So you have to be very careful, I think, when you talk about overpopulation um, and how important it is uh, when you stack it up next to all these other sort of factors. Well, and especially especially in America, you have to be very careful talking about overpopulation because you have to be self-aware because a lot of people who – you know, point to overpopulation. It, to me, it always seems like it's like the libertarian in the room pointing <laughs> to overpopulation as the problem. Uh, what they're really saying is if more, the more people that come, the less chance I have of being able to continue to consume at the ridiculous rate that I now consume. Um, so it's about sustaining their privilege as opposed to uh, you know, an, an actual sort of crisis. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's almost always contradicted or, or sort of, um, it always has this weird sort of, uh, balance that people try to maintain between talking about fear of overpopulation and talking about lack of, uh, or like the lowering of white reproductive rates. Yeah. It's sort of like we're not white kids are being out bred by all these other races uh, but also Which the world has a to... weird thing to even think about yeah um so it makes you wonder like if the world was overpopulated with a bunch of like chads and baileys like <laughs> would, would people care as much no more madisons yeah, no, <laughs> big sign out in front of the capitol no more madison um so yeah it's it it definitely very quickly can slip over into like darker territory. Um, So when the film's talking about that sort of stuff, it's kind of, that's the part of the movie where I'm like, not as interested in it. I'm way more interested in the sort of social system that they have going on in the film where everyone is very not content because they're living this kind of shitty, horrible existence, but they just have no recourse to get out of it. And they're completely dependent on Soylent and the corporation feeding them, right? Um, So in a lot of ways, you could think of, you know, earlier, I think you said something like, it shouldn't be radical to grow your own food, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe in this case, if you put it in in this kind of way, it sort of is because you're taking independence for, you know, producing and providing for yourself, Um, which, you know, if anything farming would be like a, a libertarian position of like, I don't want the government controlling my food, so I'm going to grow my own. Um, you know, but that's really difficult to do on any sort of level that could, that you could maintain and support more than like just yourself. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a big part of the conversation people have about, you know, it's a big, um, uh, what's the word like a uh, refutation of the local 
the local movement in agriculture. A lot of people who pride themselves on being very practical say, um, you know, that's great. Yeah, the food will be healthier, but you can't feed an overpopulated world with local agriculture. It has to be mass produced on an industrial scale. Um, and, and really, to me, that seems, again, in keeping with this whole sort of in quotes sustainable idea where where the real idea is to sustain the, the system that we have. It's like, how do we do what needs to be done using everything we already have? Uh, keeping the hierarchy, uh, in, the sort of social hierarchy in place. That's what those people really are getting at because they have no imagination beyond the current social structures. Yeah. And I don't know, just the mind reels. You you have like, uh, you know, the fires in the Amazon, which are in a lot of ways kind of born out of the beef industry and how it's, you know, just deforested. God knows how much of the rainforest to raise cattle um, and to raise soybeans and stuff like that. And most of the times the soybeans are raised primarily to feed the cattle and all that sort of shit. Um so, you know, clearly there's a better way to produce food that isn't being explored on the scale that it should be uh, on an international level. Um, so it, it's just sort of, to watch Swilling Green, it's, it's very much, you know, I've talked about how I'm a fan of the world building and there's not a ton of it done in this film, but it would be interesting to figure out just how the world's food supply just got so fucked in such a seemingly short amount of time. Without there being some sort of like nuclear war or something. Yeah. Hard hard to say. And 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 like I said, the movie doesn't really seem that interested in developing that. It's it's like the movie's not as interested in its concept as we are. Um yeah. it's it's more interested in its leading man, you know, shooting people. Yeah. And you know, beating their ass with his bare hands and banging a girl that's like half his age yep or or more i did uh do you notice when he's talking to the police chief kind of where they close the conversation is him talking about how how big her tits are i didn't notice that you didn't notice no i missed that really where he's like he, he asks about he's like how was the furniture and he kind of like puts his hands in front of his chest and he goes like grapefruits and the joke oh, yeah. is the the chief goes, you've never seen a grapefruit. <laughs> I, do, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, uh, pretty, pretty cool. Pretty classy. Uh, not yeah. problematic at all. <laughs> uh, very sort of highbrow humor. Yeah. And then, you know, it's kind of, it's just, I don't know, creepy. You can see from the beginning that he just sort of like, to put it in like a Cormac McCarthy-esque way, he, he has designs on her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what else might be on the shorter side of an episode. Because really, I mean, the movie's only an hour and a half long, something like that. Yeah. Uh, it goes by pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I think we've covered all the sort of major stuff. Oh, we could talk real quick about the sort of weird religious elements of it um and i just mean that there it's just sort of 
present a little bit through Simonson and uh, Cheryl talks about how before the guy came to, to assassinate him, he was taking her to church and like going to confession. And he has that weird comment when the guy, before the guy kills him, it's like, it's what God wants or something like that. Um, and you know, we, uh, through, uh, Thorne, we sort of go to the church and he meets the priest who sort of like knows more than he's saying. Um, and the concluding scene is in a church, which has now just become the shelter for all these people. So it was, it was yeah. weird to see that um, because it seems like, and again, it would take a lot more world building that they weren't interested in doing, but the kind of role that religion plays in this kind of brave new world that they live in. Yeah, and it seems like, I guess, the the sort of surface level suggestion is that this this world in 2022 has resorted to things that are just beyond any sort of Christian morality, you know, if, if Jesus says to, uh, turn the other cheek, what does it mean? You know, when someone hits you, turn the other cheek, what does it mean when you kill them and then turn their body into food and eat them? Like it's, it's a, it's a complete obliteration of any sort of like yeah. humanist philosophy. Yeah. The loaves and the fishes are people. <laughs> yes. Uh, the wine is blood, literally. Uh, but yeah, it, so so it, it it to me the suggestion is this this configuration of culture is a complete obliteration of any sort of humanist philosophy, uh, you know, and the most popular iteration of that would be Christianity. Yeah, and it kind of you know in Children of Men you had the scene where. Uh, they're the people kind of gathered in the the sort of square or wherever it is in, in London. And they're like preaching and they're wearing the signs that are like mm-hmm. God has forgotten us or whatever. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, it was just interesting to see it um, come up in Soylent Green, but not be that big of a deal. Cause it's, it's obviously Simonson has had some sort of religious conversion or like deathbed thing where he like knows the the end is is nigh for him um but then it's just kind of it's a plot point that's put there so thorn has another lead to follow yeah so and you but you also if i'm not mistaken in the church you see that the confession booths are just like booming right yeah it's it's almost like the suggestion is that people are doing a lot of things they regret in this world, um, which makes me think of the road. Just imagine like the confession booths on the road. Well, I ate another one today. Dear diary. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the only thing we hadn't covered yet that I wanted to mention because it, it just seemed like it was kind of cursory um, for the most part. Uh, but it is interesting that it's included at all, considering all the things that the film could have included, mm-hmm. uh, not uh, including, but not limited to more minority actors. There's like the police chief <laughs> and that's kind of, Oh yeah. And then the, the, the one furniture. Um, <laughs> so that was, to, that was honestly to me, I remember thinking there were more black people than I expected there to be in a 1972 Charlton Heston movie. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that, that as well. But then you think about it being like New York and also in the future, 
and uh, right. sort of what it would have. Uh, anyway, we don't need to go down that path. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, let me. I think just kind of uh, skimming my notes to see if there's anything I forgot. No, not really. I mean, we kind of covered it. Just sort of general feeling of human beings being uh, commodities on a very literal level. Um, yeah. Or at least once they're dead, right? Being worth more to society dead than alive because then they can feed the society that then will produce more. I don't know. It's a, a weird kind of cyclical chain of consumption. Yeah. Um, it also It also kind of reminded me of the... The little fruit bars in uh, Snowpiercer, yeah, the, you know, that the are bug made out bars, of bugs. And which, again, we, you know, we, were, you were saying about Okja, uh, the sort of uh, sentimental or uh, you know that sort of rhetorical appeal makes the movie more effective, even though it's not as fucked up in some ways as the idea in Soylent Green. And, and it's the same way in Snowpiercer where it's like this gross, disgusting reveal that these things they're eating are bugs. And, and the reveal in Soylent Green is not as, not as, uh, exaggerated or is not as, doesn't seem as important. Um, yeah. Even though it's people. Soylent Green is people. Right. It's made you, may, you, you may have heard. Um, Let me hold up my three stubby fingers. What a weird final shot. Yeah. Where he's like, it like zooms in and like the screen narrows and it's on his like bloody fingers. Maybe, I don't know, sort of implying like, oh, maybe he will be Soylent Green now. Because he gets shot like through the, the fucking torso and it's fine. <laughs> he runs away. He fights a dude successfully. Um, it's just, you know, they don't make men like they used to. You know, used no. to. Huh? When boys were boys and girls were girls. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess that's I guess that's it. I guess that's, that's a all I got. Um, what are we doing next week? So, so next week. We're going to uh, travel all the way back to the magical time of 1996. Hell yeah. And, Braves, uh, Yankees, World Series. <laughs> Yankees Hell yeah. Um, and we're going to be doing uh, a Polly Shore opus, <laughs> Biodome. Oh, Polly Shore, shit. Stephen Baldwin. Um, it's a film that Will's never seen and I haven't seen since I was a kid. So it'll be interesting to go back and look at um, mid-90s Pauly Shore Fair. It's directed by Jason Bloom. I'll mention that, but it's not important because he hasn't really done anything. Um, or at least nothing I would consider important. He's directed a, a major Hollywood motion picture, Matt. What have you done? <laughs> you know, that's very true. Uh, in, in more ways than I care to admit. Uh, so... That's what we'll be doing next week. Biodome. Be there, be square. Follow us uh, on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. I forgot what it was for a second. Uh, available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, you can come to my house and I'll perform it for you live. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Poison Ivy is real. 
to watch your cock and balls out there because that would suck. That's that's our new sign off. Because <laughs> that would suck. Did you did you watch that? Did you go back and watch that part? Uh, no, I just prefer to hear you do it. Please watch it. It is ridiculous. I will do that. So uh, watch out for the poison ivy and soylent green as people. <laughs>